All right. Let's do it. Welcome to the Dr. Bugill Podcast. I couldn't be more excited to have my good, good friend Guido Campello here, who I've known now, gosh, man, it's been like, it's been some, tw- I mean, 20, 20 years? Yeah. How long have you married for? It's been 11 years. Okay, so, so it's been like, at least 15 or 16 years, yeah. I would say. Um, and Guido is the co-CEO of Cosabella, which is a family-owned luxury lingerie brand that's been in existence since, I think, since 1983. 83. And now you're also the co owner and CEO of Journal, which is a New York-based multi-line luxury lingerie brand, which you just acquired, I think, in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I just acquired, and it's 11 years old, but um, but pretty much a startup. So. That's amazing, man. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have to just objectively, you know, knowing you for over a decade at mm-hmm. least, you, you strike me as someone who has this incredible, like, hustle and, you know, objectively looking at, like, sort of your upbringing, not knowing that much about it, we're going to get into all of that here. Mm-hmm. But you know, your family launched Cosabella, your mom and dad, Yeah. in the early 80s. Yeah. You must have been, what, three or four years old at the time? Yeah, three years old. And, um, you know, by the time you were graduating college, I imagine Cosabella was generating a significant amount of revenue, enough so much so that you were probably somewhat financially independent at that point, to some degree. Like, you, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> but I suspect that you probably could have coasted a little bit. And, you know, not people that I know or some people that I know that have grown up under similar circumstances where the families have very, very successful businesses. Sure. The drive that's in that next generation is sometimes somewhat lacking. And all I know from you is just fucking hustle, man. Like, you know, you're traveling all over the world. You're opening up shops for Costa Bella. I mean, if you, I follow you on Instagram, so you're everywhere. I mean, you're rarely here. I'm, I'm surprised we're even able to be here on a Tuesday. Um <laughs> But, you know, that to me is incredibly inspiring. And then the fact that, you know, you're a CEO of Cosabella and then you just acquired another brand taking on this brand new project, um, obviously investing a lot of your accumulated resources and, you know, depleting your financial wealth to launch another initiative is to me very inspiring, you know, because on a much smaller scale, I'm kind of doing something similar but to see someone at your level doing that, you know, I find that really inspiring, man. So I, I'm thanks. so psyched to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. I, I think it, hum- it it humbles to hear it like that. But obviously, it's not something that I'm doing on my own. And I think and think what you said, starting with the beginning of the story, which is my parents and the way that they work together. And what was cool is we grew up in a family company that my parents created. Right. It wasn't. They're the first generation of it. Right. So and it was we, started in Italy or started in our garage in Miami In Miami. Wow. And my sister, who's my co-CEO, still lives in that house and still uses that garage. So our roots are pretty tied uh, to Miami to where uh, the brand has launched. And, and Miami is still very important for us, of course, as our headquarters. But it's expanded globally and we sell globally now. So my job is, is to be sitting on an airplane and trying to trying to capture um all the exciting things that Cosabella can do worldwide. And that was really my parents, seeing my parents do what they did. And part of the conversations that, you know, come up now having Aviana and Naya, our two daughters, uh, come to work with us is how much time I really spent sitting behind their desks, doing my homework, uh, being uh, supportive wherever I thought I was, and then just being tied into the experience of the company. And it's real cool to see in your children now uh, things that you recognize about yourself that you forgot, which was I really did start sketching or thinking, hey, I can do mom and dad's job. And it's something that really grew up inside of me. And who's to say I didn't coast because there was a little bit of coasting for sure. <laughs> but uh, they definitely pushed us to uh, to have that drive and that discipline. And, you know, I, I'll say, you know, that American dream story. My parents came to Miami in 1980. My, my mom was eight months uh, pregnant with me and had a three-year-old daughter. Um, so they effectively weren't necessarily even thinking to be here. And then my mom happened to be bored at home and, uh, and she took a small loan and built this company and then eventually hired my father and pretty much fed the whole family. So, you know, it's really cool to see the trends that are happening now. And look, you work, uh, with an incredible partner and your wife, uh, and, and you get to do that every day here and seeing it here is really remarkable. Um, and my, my parents being able to do that with us and now me being able to do that or something and I being able to do that together, um, on this new project, it's pretty much who we are. Right. And, and that's what I think gives me the drive and it makes it exciting because 
when you lay down at night and you've get you get to share that and have those kind of loose conversations or if you're, you know, you're jumping in the shower or you're running in the car or doing the groceries there's an element of that that's always part of you and it's really part of your life it's not work so that hustle is essential you know a little bit to our characters and and how we grew up and my wife grew up pretty much the same way i'm sure you know you guys know that and and uh it's really about how do you create a world for yourself how do you open up a world uh and our parents did that by going thousands of miles from where they were uh we didn't have to go too far and we had some advantages thanks to them let's say but we wanted to create and 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 build that so both of us leaving Florida was a big step, I think, for both of us, getting out of, let's say, our shell and coming up to New York. And still today, obviously, we're here pretty much on our own and uh, and then being able to start our family away from, from where we mm-hmm. grew up. Um, I think expanding your roots, but then knowing your roots, being able to go back is so essential. What's great about Cozabella is the people that are there. Um, you know, One person who I learned a lot from in the company, it's her 30th year there. Right. And at the same time, now we start this new company or we partner in this new company and there's people that uh, have been there five, six, seven years, but not necessarily with us. So when people stay in a company, you know, there's real special value at and that gives you the hustle drive. And those people that are in the companies that that really stick through and I see it also at Sutton's practice, um, those are the ones that drive me. And those are the ones that really excite me because they give you a certain passion and element to say you're on the right track and I'm here to build with you. And um, so from family to, you know, to your, your team, uh, those are the people that really help drive me and, and make me want to do things. And frankly, you know, maybe not sleep a couple nights cause we're flying and jet lagged, but all the time uh, it looks like based on your Instagram, <laughs> you're always, yeah, always in some state of jet lag. Yeah, no. And I think it's important to tell that story. You know, I, I definitely use the Instagram for myself mm-hmm. because it's an amazing scrapbook when I've got no internet connection. It's, it's really hard, right? Because I'm alone a lot of the time. So what are the things that connect you? And those images and those pictures, like I really scroll through them because it kind of re-inspires you and you forget. You forget things you've done because totally our memory slate can only hold so much. Um, and the Instagram helps me share that. And, you know, I want my kids to see that eventually and explore, you know, what were the things that we did together? What did he do? What did my wife do? Um, I really do think at a certain point, all these things of Facebook and, and Instagram will be our scrapbooks, right? Just like when we used to go to 24 fo- 24 hour photo. Um, and I think we can value that that way. Um, so that's why I share it. I also am very hyped up and motivated when, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Mudgel sends me a message and he's like, you know, let's get it. Let's do it. Because you have other people who are watching you and supporting you and a lot of friends doing that. A lot of colleagues, sometimes competitors, uh, people who are in my industry who I'm competing against. And they're like, man, keep, keep at it. Um, that kind of interaction is, is your hustle, you know, that's your lifeline. Yeah. I love it, man. You know, there's so much, so many things that I want to ask you. Um, first of all, I love everything you just said. And you know, a lot of the stuff with, first of all, you're a really talented Instagram photographer, by the way. So I mean, exceptionally <laughs> Filters, talented. Man. And I just love looking at your stuff, but it really, it, a lot of it is about leaving a lot of what I'm doing now also is about leaving a legacy behind, you know, so my kids will have something. They could listen to the podcast of my mom and hear her story. And, you know, it's basically creating a legacy yeah, for awesome. them, right? Um, but just to go back, man, so your, your, your parents' story is kind of like where it begins for you, it sounds like. And your parents came here from Italy, <laughs> and when, in 1983, they started Costa Bella. What were they doing prior to that? Uh, my father was an engineer, a plastics engineer. So, he, you know, he built a few patents on, on different packaging. At the time, if you looked at the products that were coming across from Italy and France, even like champagne bottles and things like that, they were exploding, right? There was a lot of engineering that had to happen. And with the opening up of globalization and all this thing, um, all the products that needed to carry over, you had all these different regulations, all these things. So product engineers in that time, I mean, especially in glass and bottling were huge, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, right? And then the plastic started coming in further later. So he found an opportunity in Miami for a big distributor and, uh, and did he, he come over. here for that opportunity? He came over for that opportunity and they were only supposed to say six months, went back to Italy, said, what are we doing? Went back, uh, so on, here on a job short offer. visa, initially. Yeah, okay. short visa, uh, came over, uh, by himself or with your mom, with us. Yeah. Okay. With all of us. And, and, you know, they've always, they're adventurous. My parents, you know, I definitely have that from them too. They're mm-hmm. not scared to kind of take those steps, which is really exciting for them, uh, to have done. 
and they did it against family wishes sometimes because they're very close to their family, mm-hmm. a little more, uh, you know, town dwellers, let's say. Um, but um, they were able to they were able to appreciate a place in Miami in 1980 that was just about to bloom. It was just about to be born, and it was just about to be a melting pot. Because uh, it's not hard for me to slip into Southern Twang because that mm-hmm. existed when I was a kid. That's why I always thought you were born in Italy because <clears throat> you have like this fusion. That's you know, Miami, yeah. 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 I mean, listen to Pitbull's accent. Yeah, you know? yeah. So the 305 lays heavy. And, and I think why it lays so heavy is because it's so many dreamers that came, really. And and I mean, my elementary school um, was the United Nations. You could put every single flag of Central, South America on there, a few European flags. And there weren't many places in the world that were like that, especially in 1985, 86, mm-hmm. 87. Um, and then we got, you know, Miami kept getting um, just evolving. And because the real estate blew up, then we had all the Northerners come in, all the New Yorkers. And, mm-hmm. and that whole world changed us and it grew us up a bit, right? Mm-hmm. So we went from being real Latin to starting to become a little more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. And now you see where Miami's at. And if you think of Cozabella, Cozabella went through that. It was it started door to door. So that loan that my mom took. So what was your mom's background? Did she have background my, in fashion? My mom was a lawyer and a teacher. Really? And, in Italy. In Italy. And she was, you know, that's where her direction was also taking her. And then, you know, in all likelihood in Italy, uh, you know, a lot of women end up being a housewife. Mm-hmm. Right? It's hard. Being an entrepreneur as a woman in Italy, that is somebody you should have on this podcast. Right. If, if it happens. Right? And it does but it's very hard. And uh, what she was able to do here is she had the independence to walk around door, door to door in Miami soliciting was the way you got things done back in the day. Did she already have stuff? like uh, she, would, she... she bought some products in Italy. It was like cashmere sweaters and kids uh-huh. puppets and these things and started just selling door to door to pretty much keep her, keep her time, right? Uh-huh. And keep busy. And uh, She probably didn't need to do that for money. I, I mean, no. She, she, I won't say the family didn't need it. And I also say that for her, like her, her most, her greatest satisfaction is, is seeing, a, uh, let's say a customer excited. Mm-hmm. Like she still packs the boxes. If you were to ask her, what's the thing that you want to do at Cozabella today? She says, I want to pack, pack that box. I want to tape it up and ship it out because I want them to get that. And when notes come in, because we get thank you notes in the boxes that come back, maybe with a swap or return, she's the one who can get to, to receive those. It's a, it's a, it's that satisfaction she gets. So that door to door selling, that kind of interaction is part of who she was. And it wasn't gimmicky. It was more like, I think this is really fun. Mm-hmm. Why don't you try it? Well, and, a real passion there. And that's the passion. And, and they stumbled upon a lingerie uh, brand that was just doing cotton underwear in different colors. And if you go back to underwear in uh, 1982, yeah, man, it was yeah. black, white, nude yeah. boring it what just wasn't an exciting world and and I, I spent a lot of time in that world and what you could pretty much give credit i'd say to cozabella for and, and my mother for is the vision of color so every colored lingerie drawer you see now when you go to victoria's secret when you go anywhere that was really an essential part of what Coza, what cozabella and valeria gave um to the underwear uh world amongst other things and that is probably the biggest thing. And her, her slogan or her life uh, voice was always freedom of color, meaning that, and if you look at it, how it applies today, it's color of people, color mm-hmm. of culture, color of background, color of, you know, economic uh, position. And it, and it was spoken about in the color of the underwear that you pick every day. And her thing was like, when you open up that drawer and you just get that blast and you feel like that energy it comes right back to the, the that let's get it attitude, yeah. right? So she's like, Are, am I red today? Am I fire today? Or am I, you know, love today, right? So she really would apply that and talk about that. And that's how we launched the colors, which now are just, you know, ubiquitous with, right. with the industry. Uh, but it had so much meaning back then to like just your daily Instagram feed almost, right? Opening right. up that lingerie drawer. First so, contact. Uh, that's awesome, man. And when you were a kid, so obviously the business developed, um, I guess your parents, did they open up a shop or something in Miami initially? They, or? No, they started pretty much wholesaling, right? Okay. Old school, man. No direct-to-consumer. You start uh, you start really door-to-door is the closest uh-huh. to direct-to-consumer. But then the idea was, you know, are there shops that need product? And how do we start distributing that way? So when did it start actually make? So your mom was basically really? selling other stuff 
initially. She was selling other stuff initially. Cozabella itself started as hosiery in 1983 as one of the products she started selling. So and that was manufactured this as Cozabella? Manufactured as Cozabella. That's when the brand Cozabella was born. So she really was doing this this work from like 81, 82. Gotcha. She, she was already in the movement. Okay. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't know if and she Did you see start. a need that there was a need for... It was those cotton underwear okay. in color. So and, they needed uh, better underwear, basically. Yeah, they, she started selling that. And what she said is, um, you know, what else is missing? Hosiery. Okay, well, why don't we do our own brand of hosiery? And what do we name it? And that's where they created the Cozabella name because they thought it was it just going to be it? a subset. Cozabella means beautiful thing, okay. but beautiful everything. Beautiful thing is a little harsh. But um, it was meant to be a solution piece, right, for her collection it ended up becoming the brand right and that was made in italy that was made in italy yeah so she had someone making it there she'd bring it over here and then sell it yeah that same that same hosiery uh and production role i'm producing right now for new york designers on the runway i got an order yesterday also for that same exact process so 36 37 years later that product still exists now is it in cozabella i bring it in every now and then but but Italy is known for that product. Um, anything that's hosiery, uh, Italian related, is really the best, in my opinion. That's amazing, man. So so, so just walk just walk me through a little bit of product the business. Well, how like the business develop? You know, now yeah. you have you know retail it's stores. Product, and- product, man. Product, right? You as as a doctor, you deliver a product that's you as a service, but also these great um, solutions that that the pharma comes up with. Uh, to be able to resolve issues, right? And whether it's preventative, whether it's like aesthetic, mm-hmm. or whether it's solution-based, lingerie has that, right? We are we are either trying to make fun things to play, right? Uh, things to make you feel good and comfortable all day long, or things to resolve issues that people have that are related right back to derm uh, and, and physical. And uh, what Cozabella always does is it looks at innovation, right? So from a fabric standpoint, from a trend, from a culture, so right now, if you look at keywords, what are the keywords in fashion? And you talk about uh, what we call extended sizing, which we were credited in by Time Magazine as quoting that. So really? instead of calling it plus sizing, we called it extended. Uh, this was about five years ago, and now it's being used. Because we were saying, not only do you go to 3X, 5X, or go up that, you also go back to petites. So we're launching the petites this year. So now we, go, we do the same exact item from a technical petite um, all the way through to a, to a 5X. So extended sizing mean let's just open up mm-hmm. the the rainbow of that. If you look at words like sustainability, <clears throat> sustainability is coming in fashion like at an alarming pace. Meaning that if you're a fashion brand starting now and that is not number one or number two on your list, you're in trouble because it comes down to packaging, hang tags, your clothing label, the way you wash your clothes, the way it's dyed, the way the yarn's recycled. All those things are so important. You can't start a fashion brand right now without thinking about that and making sure sure you have certification. So we make sure we focus on that, and we're the essentially the first real premium and fashion lingerie brand to do it. And we partnered with a great uh, retailer called Reformation, which is a real driven millennial um, sustainability fashion brand, probably the one who owns that market right now. Uh, and we partnered with them on purpose so we could do that and accomplish that. They came to us, but we were really wanting to go to them. So we look at things that we're not doing, who's doing them, who's got a big voice, right? Who's on social? Who's speaking to me in, in the exam room, right? Speaking to something in the exam room. What are we seeing and what are we not doing? And then the question isn't, do we do it or we don't do it? It's how, how do, do you do it? do it? And how do you do it if, if you work with me? Like, just like, you know, like, let's get it. How do you do it is the most important thing to me. Because if I can make it on a day trip, you know, to London to execute and accomplish something, um, which is getting into an airplane that flies at 32,000 feet going that fast. Like we think about the things we take for granted. Mm -hmm. Everything is really possible. I mean, it's crazy what we take for granted now. And we're talking about underwear. So we're trying to accomplish some things. Today I had a great meeting this morning, perfect example of a product that you will probably see in February. But Supna took the time to break it down in a diagram, like a medical diagram to show why it's necessary and this specific product, when it launches, and, and we will be pushing it, will will literally revolutionize the way your wife looks at her underwear. It will change it because it's a concept of sizing that doesn't exist based on medical need. And um, nobody talks about it because it's uncomfortable to talk about. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? You can do it with the right you know, uh, bedside manner right. and that, that kind of thing. So my parents pushed that. 
And long story short, we went from hosiery to now the thong. The thong is ubiquitous with lingerie, but really, yeah, it was known for the thong. That's Cozabella. That yeah. thong song's taken. You yeah, know, the yeah. video's in Miami for a reason. And yeah. uh, um, but it but it was a great push. And then bralettes. Now, if you're in our space, the big talk is bralettes. And women have been looking for non-wired solutions mm-hmm. in bras for different reasons, also medical, also skin-related, um, and also about lymphatic flow mm-hmm. when we relate it to breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And it's something that's kind of rocking the world right now because when you look at the Victoria's Secrets of the world that have had these structured bras and now had to move away from them because of these kind of conversations, mm-hmm. I really do think wireless bras are the future for women. Uh, people are just going to move away from thinking like, why do I need a wire in anything I'm wearing? Uh, and especially if it's causing pressing and, and, and issues mm-hmm. and you see it, I'm sure mm-hmm. in a lot of different factors. So that's something that we are now known for. And that is something because we've found the way to create the technical support for it. Wash after wash. So we want to find those opportunities. And just like my parents spirit was to go find something new. I think Cozabella's drive. My drive is to go to other places. I've gotten to live in Japan for a couple of years. I have a real close relationship with India right? Which hasn't really fully Westernized yet. So I think about, I I really do. I think about my daughters 25 years from now and what their impact could be on women in India having Westernized in terms of the fit and the type of underwear that they wear, Mm -hmm. right? If they stay in this business and it's generational. Let's go with that for a minute, man. Um, So I, I imagine at some point growing up, like there was like this jump in your lifestyle right like when you were a kid so mm-hmm. Cozabella obviously is you know at some point there was you're, you were living in a nicer house but your family was having yeah. a better car yeah. nicer clothes you, had, you know I know for Vinita who's my wife like her family you know they did very very well they were in the mm-hmm. nursing home business and there was like a distinct point where things changed you know like the, like sure. you know where there was just much more wealth around you know maybe looking back is that she can you know the pers- perspective has changed she can actually isolate that time where you're living in it, you don't necessarily know. You don't really Absolutely. realize it. For you, looking back, I imagine there was a time I where know, it was like, yeah. oh, you know what? We're living in like a nicer neighborhood now. You know, look, looking back. You as, know. A, as a family, 1992, on my father's birthday, actually, it was Hurricane Andrew. And Hurricane Andrew hit Miami. And we hadn't had a, a hurricane like that ever in my lifetime, but really had been such, such a long time. Now it's normal. Mm-hmm. But at the time, nobody was prepared. Yeah. And uh, our house was about, let's say, a mile and a half from our office. Our office happened to be right at the, at the north edge of the eye wall. So a mile and a half away, and it was completely raised. It was completely destroyed. So all of Cozabella disappeared in the matter of three and a half hours. It was the um, factories and stuff there as well? This, is, this was all our stock, okay. all our inventory. Wow. And this is when, when you're a small business yeah, yeah. and you're starting to form your cash flow and your move, no matter how much insurance you have, you lose the momentum and you take a hit like that. And we still have the video of when my parents went, you know, with their big camera to film it. Cause they're like, my dad's first thing is let's go with a camera in case we still have battery power. Cause there's no more power. Let's get it now. Mm-hmm. And thank God they did. But you can hear them just sobbing and you hear them crying in that wow. video and you can hear the alarms going off. Cause everything's disconnected. Right. Pieces of the roof are still falling and tornadoes had just wiped it out. Wow. You know, we put our cars in the warehouse thinking, okay, they'll be safer here. Destroyed. Wow. And, uh, and for them and my mother, she, she has a painting now in her house that symbolizes for her all the different steps of Cozabella. But right in the middle of it is this like swirl. That's that hurricane. And what that did is for nine months, they moved everything into our house, everything they could recover. We were drying underwear on our like broken fences. And we had some great retail partners back then that, that took everything in almost like as a hurricane sale. And they, they sold it for us. Um, but, but I grew up fifth and sixth grade with the entire office in my living room, in my dining room, in my kitchen, in our garage. They spared everything except my sister and I's uh, bedroom because they wanted us to have a normal year. Mm -hmm. But even in my parents' bedroom, was all the boxes. It was a warehouse. So you take a company that's working with major department stores and move it all into a house with no power for four weeks, with no ice. We were trying to feed everybody. People, most of our team's homes were destroyed or damaged because they lived actually within the eye wall. And they were coming in. We took every computer and opened it up, not me, but our our team, and dried the insides of the computer and tried to use whatever we could to just get everything ready so that the moment the power would come up, hopefully they all worked, right? And we were able to save a lot. And what that also did is it brought all the thought processes really close together. My parents had a partner, Sergio, 
who spent a lot of time with us there. And that's, you know, that's essentially where things really changed for them creatively. And they said, let's just go get this. And um, let's say that was what, 1992. By 94, 95, the brand started really having legs. And I would say... Seventh, eighth grade? Yeah, seventh, eighth grade. And uh, I would say in ninth grade, 10th grade, when I got to high school, and that's when the thong started happening. And and the real rise for Cozabella happened with this thong. My father, if you look today at our thong package, we have these thong packages. Mm -hmm. They're the exact same size as a CD because they're like almost like a CD single slip. They used to sit, my father went to a Specs music store, Uh right? And he's like, wait a second, if we can layer these at at countertops, we can put thongs at countertops. So what happened? Those thongs ended up showing up without us realizing it, right? They went to lingerie stores, they went to hotels, they went inside rooms, they went to spas because people would forget their underwear when they'd go. They went to exercise places like Equinox because people were forgetting their underwear. And that's how all of these things kind of built up. So what we found was a placement for underwear that was premium, fashion, fun, all that color. And it was just about application. So we're a family of artists. I went to art school. And the essence of art is application. If you can find an application for a specific technique you can inspire millions of people, suddenly there's a value. Now, it could be a product that functions, or it could be an Andy Warhol that's sitting on a wall, but it just takes people to a place, and they're willing to come from all over the world to see it. It makes money move, right? So art as application is business. Like an iPhone. Yeah, what's that? Like an iPhone. The iPhone, right. yeah. that concept. And what he did that was really cool is, is if you can make an, a, a piece of art that then creates a community, which is what he did. He created the community of apps and built businesses and built an industry off of an art piece. Yeah. So if you can do that with an item, and that's what happened with the thong, believe it or not. This this item that is like one of the oldest pieces of clothing and apparel that people could have worn, right? Because it's not invented. Mm-hmm. Um, opened up a whole category of fun lingerie. It changed a generation because it really changed women. It did empower. And the story about the thong alone is a great empowering story. Because the reason it came out in 1994 is because we had the same cycle of sexual harassment. We had Mike Tyson. We had, you know, the Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C. Mm -hmm. mayor. You had all these different Mm -hmm. people talking about that. And you had more women entering the workplace. And you had bikini lines under the suits, under the skirts. So the bikini line idea is if you go to, if you follow my mother, she's no more VPL on Instagram. And that's no more visible panty line. (laughs) That was her handle in America Online chat rooms. In 94, 95, 96. That's unbelievable. She was on there doing, talking about panty lines and talking about back fat. And what we realized is the internet was a forum for women to speak about their problems anonymously. Right. They didn't have to watch just like Maury Povich, right? Right. You could actually do it and interact. And that thong came out of AOL chat rooms, visible panty line conversation, working women who didn't want to be bothered and like just you know, smirked at at work because they were wearing the wrong panty. So we cut off the top of our bodysuits, which had this thong back and it was okay to wear a thong back when it's part of a a bodysuit, but people couldn't think I'll wear a thong every day as a normal piece of underwear. But that's what we did. We cut it off and that became that thong. So that period between 92 and 95, if you look at the product of the brand, we went from bodysuits to really thongs and bottoms within those three years. And that's when the family shift happened. We moved in 1997. So consider in five years, we bought a new house, bigger Mm. house. My parents managed to keep that house. They didn't have to sell it, right? So certain advantages started Mm. happening. Uh, And yeah, from a lifestyle perspective, a beach apartment in Miami, Mm. right? Being able to travel to Italy with, Mm. you know, much more um, potential to travel Italy. Because when I was a kid, we didn't really travel Italy all that much. Now when you go to Italy, we're traveling it everywhere. We're seeing all the towns. We're going to Amalfi and Capri and all these places. So we definitely saw our parents enjoy a bump. Socially, they became part of the Miami scene, right? right? And really could come out of the work space mm-hmm. to spend time and do things. And then they started another business. And this is why Sapna and I huh. look at another business. Yeah. It's why you do too. What's the other business they started? So they started a, a Spanish architecture magazine called Casa Estilo Internacional. At the time, it was the first and only Spanish architecture interior design magazine in the world. 
And they started in Miami because we had all these great designers, right? And Romero Brito and all these guys, and we're working with all them. And, uh, and pretty much, you know, Architectural Digest, when they went into Spanish, was taken from this step. And, and they partnered with a great friend who had publishing experience. And it turned into a TV show on Spanish language television. And they won a Spanish Emmy. So the most important piece of award, even though we've got a lot of fashion awards and some that my parents will say maybe is more important, the most important global award that, you know, our families won is literally a Spanish language that's TV cool. Emmy. Wow. That's awesome, man. <laughs> so. So, so was so. One of the things that you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago was yeah. that you know your hope is that your daughters will, yeah. you know, expand the brands that you're developing into India. Was <clears throat> was there an expectation that you guys were going to go into the family business? Was it like okay, this we've created this, and now you guys need to take it to the next level as our the next generation. So in '99, I moved to New York for NYU, and I came to school. And I think did you go to art school at NYU? I went to Gallatin, which is urban design. So I'd, I did architecture for a okay. little bit um, and coming out of art school. But I did Pratt. I, I, I did the art scene, but I needed to go structured, you know. Okay. And, uh, and my parents pointed me in the right direction. They knew New York was my mm-hmm. place, I guess, right? But um, 1998, because I think I was about 18, it was before I left. And they said, you know, people, people wanted to buy the brand. And the usual suspects still today. So they, they're like, like the bigger know, lingerie yeah, brands. Yeah, the bigger right lingerie now. brands, the people that were growing, the companies that were mm-hmm. going public. Uh, a lot of the great retailers you know today. Mm-hmm. We had our first copy, uh, which was The Gap, right? And and the opportunity to say, wait a second, you're copying us. Why don't you just take our brand, right? Or When you're a small brand, that sounds great. Fortunately, they didn't sell, but they asked us. They sat my sister and I down and said, do you guys see yourselves ever doing this? And I was like, yeah, sure. It's cool. You guys are great. And of course, all we're seeing is the high time there. So mm-hmm. we're like, yeah, of course we do this. This is what it's going to be like every right. day, right? I just need to go to school. Have you know? So I went to NYU and almost from the outset, my parents would try to get me. When I would come back, they'd put me in the warehouse. In the summers in Italy, I was in our production to facilities. To learn the business. To learn the business. So I got to see the production side. My sister... At that point, I think she's 20 years this year. So she entered in 99. Uh, I get, yeah, she just did 20 years. How so much older is she? She's four years older okay. than me. And, uh, and so I was seeing the different parts of the business without still being a student. I did live in Italy, so I got to tie in a little bit closer there too. It was like a semester abroad. Semester abroad, but got to still kind of mess around with our production team there. And we were launching our Italian office that actually started that year. So I got to be part of that, which is really cool. And, um, and they just always kept me involved and they would give me projects and side projects while I was at school. And luck would have it with the, the field I went into. I ended up working with a firm that was doing all the Urban Outfitters and Anthropology stores. And all so the, this is your job after college? This is during college. During college. I okay. started working I started working during college. Okay. I took an internship but made it made sure that it became a job gotcha. really quickly. So, yeah, I always had it. I mean, I worked Saturday, Sundays. I took gotcha. night classes. But, but so, I mean, sorry to interrupt you, but. Yeah, sorry. But why? Like, what, was it your own passion for like yeah. fashion that inspired that? I mean, that's what I, I, you know. I, I always, there's one thing that I still wake up with today, which is I wake up with, you know, it's, it's not a mission, but I want to accomplish something every day. And I do. And I, you know, I will say it affects but me. But even at that age? Like yeah. I had 19, the, 20. Yeah. And, and maybe it wasn't as directed, but it was always like, okay, I wake up and I go, what's today? What, what's happening today and what's the purpose today? And maybe to, maybe it's just, you know, you got to make friends today or you got to go party today or you need to make sure that you, uh, you know, push yourself. I'm, I, can, I can lend myself to being reclusive if I wanted to. And, and I do appreciate my alone time. At the same time, it's a detriment. So I keep myself out there, right? And I, and I do have to wake up and be like, don't be lazy today. And not because I got to pump myself up, but because really I got lazy bones. Mm-hmm. They're in there. And so if you keep moving, it won't stop the yeah, momentum. Yes, the momentum's hard, man. Momentum's so at that hard. age, like so all the stuff that you've been working seven days a week, going <clears> to school, it was just inspired by keeping the flow going. Keep the flow going and, and absorbing. And, and I guess the, the artist side of me is to like really, what's the next cool thing? Mm-hmm. And like I was seeing China back then like crazy. I just didn't have the opportunity to, to make it over there permanently, mm-hmm. like to live there, which I really wanted to. But I knew that like if I really wanted to go leaps and bounds and come back 20 years later, that was the time cap. That was the spaceship, right? Mm-hmm. So I try to accomplish what I could in the meantime. And part of that was fashion and what Cozabella and, and this world could give mm-hmm. because it allowed me the excuse. Listen, 
Not everyone can get on an airplane and travel as much as I can, but when it's on the company expense because it's part of your job mm -hmm. and you get to do it, do you say no to that? You know, now it's harder with family and kids and mm -hmm. expectations, but you're still traveling, mm -hmm. right? You're still getting to see those things. So the what I wake up with every day is what in the world haven't I seen yet? Mm -hmm. So if it's a neighborhood in New York, if it's coming out here, mm -hmm. right? If it's a friend who I really haven't like dug in enough and understood mm -hmm. and at work, what parts of the job am I like totally taking advantage of or neglecting? Mm -hmm. And and sometimes it's insurmountable, right? Because you want to do everything. Right. And, and and that can be exhausting. But at the same time, when you get some of that discipline and you start lining it up, and once you do it for long enough and you create that habit, right? Those right. key 28 days, yep. that's the goal. And, and I do keep that in my head too. When there's something I'm not doing, I try to get to 28. It's really yeah. hard. Yeah, it's tough, man. <laughs> so let's go back to college. You're doing all this stuff. You're working yeah. for, yeah. you know, Urban Outfitters and, you know, all this other stuff. And then, so then what? So like, you know, when you, when you was it kind of set up, you graduate college and you know, work for Cosabella? My, my parents gave me a project to build our first New York office and they let me do it completely by myself. So that's a corporate office or retail? Office? This was our showroom okay. at the time. So it's a shop. It was it's like a shop for wholesale for all the department stores worldwide to come. Gotcha. And but can said, people come and buy stuff there or no? It's not retail? They, yeah, well not not direct to consumer. Okay. It's really the wholesale showroom gotcha. office. Okay. And they they let me free. And and now I appreciate thinking like Well, wow, and you were 20 I was I was when I did that I was 21, 20. Okay, so you're still in college. So I'm still in college. Okay. And and do I think 20-year-olds now are capable of doing that? Absolutely. But I think about who I was and I'm, I'm like, they had some trust because mm -hmm. I need to get the lease, find the space, do the construction, get the permitting in New York. Like right. the people you're dealing with getting ripped off every day, you know, right. then coming back and justifying it. So it was a great first project because that led me to building, right? And that's now how many offices between Sutton and I have we built and run. It was I would have never known that that little space was right. going to be so important. And then they had me do in-store projects. So they convinced me in 2003 when I was done with school to come to move back down to Miami. And they're like, just run this one project for us. And they sucked me in and they brought me in and I went in through like the graphics and illustrative. So what was that? Uh, that project. Yeah. It was, so we created a uh, square footage is so important, brick and mortar. Now, nobody talks about it, mm -hmm. right? Because it's about show, showrooming. Mm -hmm. But in that time, every square foot, and I created a rack that could sell an absurd amount of product within a one-by-one one square foot space. And Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's, and all these people brought it in because the thought process is it's the most efficient rack and presentation of Cozabella possible. Wow. And um, it was modular, so it could be changed. It could be all these things. And it was done from like an industrial design architecture side that I learned working for Urban Outfitters and Anthropology. And that's what your degree is in? Like industrial design? It's urban design and planning. Okay. Go figure. Last thing I yeah, do yeah. is form a city. Um, but but they had me go right, right into the specifics and I had to source it. I had to make it. I had to sell it. So I was actually going to the department stores and presenting it, selling it, creating the whole program buys for it. So you go to re like you'd go to like a Neiman Marcus <clears throat> store, or you go to like Neiman Marcus I'd go to corporate headquarters. Oh no, the bosses. How'd you get? Oh, well, you got meetings because you're Cosabella. We were already having relationships with them, mm -hmm. so look, I had advantage for sure, and to take that advantage and use it uh, was what my parents were teaching me. Right, but either use it or squander, right? Because like you know, you're, yeah, you know, the, the, it's easy to say that you, the door was open for you, right? But you could have easily gone in there. Yeah with some bullshit product and fucked up the relationship. I mean, there's right. a lot of pressure there yeah. to not damage the brand. Like you have to present something legit, you know, and that's something people don't think about a lot of the times when you sort of come from this, you know, this lineage of having like a powerful brand behind you, whether sure. it's a family business, there's pressure there not to screw, screw it up. You know, whenever, whenever I think about other people doing that, that I don't know, right. You read about them in the paper, whatever it is like, I'm a judgmental person, so it's easy for me to have like an immediate instinct like, oh, yeah, well, that's different. But at that scale, you know, then you come back and you kind of step back and you think at everybody's scale, there's challenges on every part. And um, my part was that I wasn't, let's say, socially apt to do that job. And I didn't know if they were negotiating with me in that moment. And they, that's what they were doing. They were manipulating the young right. kid. And everyone's going to face that. And you're seeing it. Anyone who signs a contract and becomes a superstar, you're like, yeah. man, his records sell millions, but he's, he's right. not getting it on the back right. end. So it's hard to understand where you should come in. But, the, but my father would do this one thing. And, 
And when, when I learned how to swim, he dragged us to the bottom of the pool and let us go and swim back up, right? And he was there for us, but we had to swim up. And he, does, he, he did that in work too, where he'd be like, okay, here's your tasks, drop you in the middle of the ocean, get at it, right? And in Italy, we say pedala, which means just pedal, because the bikes, you're not gonna balance a bike if you're right, not pedaling. Right. And, uh, and that's what I think I've become too with a lot of my team, is when you really see somebody who can kind of pull something off, yeah. you can only just drop them in it. And, right. and that's the way I learned, and, but because the doors were there, and I was able to push them open. And now what I love to do and the way that I work is there's an opportunity. Let's kick that door open. Let's get it open first. Because once it's open, we can have eye to eye. And the moment the eye to eye comes, let's see what we can accomplish. And let's yeah. see if our timelines are sinking. Right. And, uh, and from there you can build out. And that's what he taught me too is you can show up with the lowest level person at a company or the highest level because that's what those rooms were. Assistant buyer up to mm-hmm. DMM. And if you speak to all of them, guess what? That DMM is now... That that assistant buyer, sorry, right, is now the DMM stuff, yeah. 10, 15 years later. So I learned that too over time that you appreciate everyone at every level, uh, no matter what advantages or not they have to be in the room. Some of them are the children of someone. Some of them are this. Right. But listen, we all are, we're all pushing water to our water mill. And, um, and I think that's the biggest lesson my father taught me was just to get in there and, and start talking. Yeah, right? it sounds like you went in. Like you're like from the bottom of the pool up. It's like your dad taught you how to swim. Yeah. Um, so tell so that's your first job out of college. Your dad, your first task he assigns you, okay, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. Then it was like, was it like, okay, after you were done with that, essentially it's okay, now I need you to do this. And then you kind of got like, basically just became part of the business, the yeah, fabric they, of the business. My dad handed me all the trademarks and patents that the business had, which was really cool. Cause that's your first legal, let's say interaction besides the lease. And, uh, and I started appreciating legacy. And appreciating defending it because what was happening in those years was we were getting copied by everyone. Mm. And I've got this amazing box of all the copies that we went and fought against because we had the patents. Wow. So this morning, Sutton and I discussed a patent, which is 100% right. And the opportunity to say, to explain it to my daughters and say, hey, look, this is something your mom's doing now. You don't understand it now. Do it with us. Because 20 years from now, you'd be like, oh my God, when that patent right. expires, because they expire after 20 years, right? right. She'll be like, man, that was crazy 20 years. And I got to see that with my dad and his patents and the things that have his name on it. And one of the cool things he did too is he put my name on one of the things that went in as a patent, not me not knowing. And he said, hey, look, you're on the patent, right? Wow. And that's cool because then you feel like you really created something and you had some ownership to it. So that was a big part of me understanding the brand. And I rebranded Cozabella at that time and rebranded all our packaging and really dove into what branding meant. And just so like this is like 2004, 2005. This is 2004, 2005. Okay. And uh, I read a book that was called Johnny Don't Brand. It was a silly book, but the most basic thing, and there's a word that I use every single day to this day, even this morning, is just differentiator. What's your differentiator? What is it? Because you could be sitting with everyone wearing blue shirts, but if you've got six buttons, everyone else has got five, mm-hmm. you've got a differentiator. And it was about thinking about everything that way. And, um, and what that took is every single product, every single time we did a presentation, every time you looked at something was like, what looks different here? What's the thing that's standing out? And again, insurmountable at times, and mm-hmm. you get lost in it sometimes. Mm-hmm. But the gems that come out of that, man, the things that, that you know, I want to say that I really contributed to uh, really excite me. They really meld into, uh, I think, what that learning was. So going right into the graphics, having already experienced a little bit about production and and warehouse and all that stuff out of graphics then into sales and that i did two years in japan i moved to japan for two years wow so kosabel has had offices in japan at that time so i decided that i was going to work remotely in 2005 so i was kosabel let's say we had remote employees in terms of sales but i really got to experience working remotely and but what motivated that um, I mean, what motivated I, japan? because of architecture uh you're from new york in queens there's an amazing museum his name's Isomon Noguchi, and he does these amazing chairs and Noguchi table. Mm, yeah, you can I see that. I have one of those. So he's yeah. one of the simplest designers, if you think of how simple mm-hmm. that table is. Totally. And it's now a it's a piece of wood and piece of glass. Right. <laughs> but it has a form to it. Right. And it was all about form, but simple form, yeah. and how a simple form could change a space. And he also did all, you know, futon companies used them like crazy, but it was those uh, uh, rice paper uh, lightings. Yep. So I studied that through architecture. This is when uh, you were my in college. Studies. This is when I was okay. in high school and college. So you had like a fascination for that. Yes, because of the 
materials that were used, which mm. were, he was focused on natural. So now you talk about sustainability wow, yeah. and he was always about that. And he was about creating volume with little material. In Japanese architecture, those homes are meant to collapse on top of you when there's an earthquake. It's supposed to fall down and you're supposed to survive, right? You're supposed to be able to float if there's a tsunami like the guy who was found all the way out in the ocean mm-hmm. because it's all natural materials. So learning about that to where I am now was, I thought, going to be key. And, and it was. And I got to go to Japan, which in 2005, at the height of Japan, at the height of the United States. Wow. It was a uh, fifth element. So by yourself, you just went? I went by myself. Yeah, I went, I, I had a partner at the time, went out there um, separately, but together, let's say. And then my, you know, and then I just, I, I made the effort in three months to pick up Japanese. Um, you speak Japanese? I speak Japanese. Oh my God. Uh, I speak it terribly now, but if I drink whiskey, I'm good. Yeah, 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 and gotcha. uh, That's and, Yamazaki. Yeah, there you go. Perfect. <laughs> Yamazaki does the trick. But the... Um, the uh, the beauty of it was that once you spoke even even a lick, the Japanese opened yeah. opened up the world. And to see their discipline while being so creative, and then they, the way they would copy things but make them better. That's right. the Japanese way. They right. would come take pictures of everything, copy right. it, like but, denim, Japanese but make denim. it better. Yeah. That was their goal. They didn't say we're going to copy it and bring it down. And I have that thought process. I think, man, he did that. It's awesome. But I want to do it like this. Right. And I want to take it this way. Right. So to just copy something to make it cheaper, that's another culture. Right. But to take an idea and make it better and and even to be able to impress that person, that's my goal. So I've gotten that part and the discipline, the Japanese discipline um, tied in. And what that gave me is for working remotely is I got to learn team members by just our phone conversations, right? Without face, without any of that stuff. And now most of my team is remote. So the reason I can travel and work the way I do is because I don't have to see people's faces to understand maybe some of those nuances. Just like you guys know instinctually as a doctor, you can tell by a flinch what people are are kind of experiencing. There's a bit of that for working remote. And you need to be able to hear that. And then you have to deal with it. So Japan gave me that. Best thing I did, though, is I left the U.S. for two years without coming back once. Wow. Did so your parents come visit you? They came once. And and, it, and I visited Europe. I visited all Asia. But the idea was I want to come back to America and see it with fresh eyes. And I came back in 2007. So you're how old are you at that point? I'm 26. Okay. And uh, I came back in 2007. And I got off the airplane in Atlanta. And I called my dad. And I said, what's happening? What What's going on in America? Because I could see everyone's faces totally different. From 05 to 07, I could see almost a depression right off of the airplane in the Atlanta wow. airport. I looked around. I said, feels huh. weird because I left with this with this right. buzz. And uh, I got to New York that evening. The next day, I was like, I think the whole New York office is is closing. I think I need to move back from Japan. I really thought I was going to spend a much longer lifetime in Japan. So you came to basically revive the New York office? Is I it- came as a business trip to try to understand what was going on because I felt like there were some changes. I called my dad and I said, I'm moving back. Uh, I happened to meet Sapna on that trip. Oh, wow. I happened to meet her on that trip. And uh, and when I went back to Japan, picked up everything be- besides my guitar and skis, anything that was big, flew back to New York. And the day after I flew back, the entire New York office quit. Whoa. Yeah. So I took over sales, marketing, showroom, PR, and all this stuff, that uh, departments I hadn't done yet. Wow. And I took it over. Why did everyone um, Because the the market crashing was creating a total turn. But the market was at like a peak in 2007, crashed in 2007 in fashion. Right? So what's cool about fashion is I can tell you instinctually what's happening July next year. Because people aren't spending money on stuff? because of how people are buying and because of what department stores are saying in the trend. And I know July, 2017 next year, premium brands that have a niche are going to do well, well priced brands because the market's going to start adjusting quickly and people who've figured out China, but everything in the middle is going to be a struggle because it's not going to be a middle-class looming year. Right. And I can see it by the way people are buying. That's interesting. And so when I came in 2007, I could see 2008. You could see it in our wow. orders. You could see it in the humor. And so it's enough to look around right now. Like what are the things that are, people are valuing right now? And what does that mean a year from now? Right. And that's how the trends run. That's why the news wants to scare us or yeah, right. push tendencies. Right. And mm-hmm. do market adjustments. But the truth is you can go out there and, and just look at your friends. Talk to your friends. Listen to your friends. And you can see how shifts are happening. 
And I saw that the moment I came back. It really, I, the freshest eyes I've ever had in the United States, mm. I felt I was so big in Japan. And I come back and suddenly I'm small, but I see that the energy is, is lacking. Right. And seeing the Japanese energy, which was still humming, but already transitioning to over here. The most exciting thing that was happening in the US at that time was technology and it was Apple, mm-hmm. right? Which ended up being the one, like the company that blew up yeah. because the Apple iPhone wasn't even there yet. It came right. out right after. Right. But I had already seen that technology in Japan. It was already happening. And you could already see how it was gonna change our society and how it was gonna change our retailers because I was already shopping for product in Japan in 2005, 2006 on my right. phone. So I knew e-commerce was gonna be impactful. Cusabella didn't launch e-commerce really until 2013, cusabella.com. So think of that difference in time, yeah. you know? So coming back to the States, all of that opening up, suddenly New York was my town and, and I had to embrace it as it was crashing. And I met my wife as it was crashing and she was in residency with right. you. She was finishing a residency. Yeah, year. man. We actually never did residency together. I'm well, like, I'm older than her. <laughs> with the team, but I guess yeah. from an attending standpoint. Yeah. Right? Probably attending. I was actually a fellow. She, she, oh, she, I were? think the year I finished my fellowship, she graduated residency. Oh, cool. yeah. So that's, you know, we didn't meet soon. We met soon after that. Yeah. But the what was happening was that the world was going to flip upside down. At the time, our number one customer was 40% of our business. That customer today is less than 0.45% of our business. Wow. And it was over 40. So we were going to go out of business. And, and that that's the other experience that for my sister and I was. So was possible. there like financial duress for you guys? Like, did you feel like? Hell yeah. Yeah. What happened? We bought out my partner or my parents bought out. Sorry. My parents bought out the partner in 2005, right before that. So they had money that they lent to the company, right? So, but it's their company. Mm-hmm. So they had done all these things to do a play on the market continuing being to mm-hmm. continue to be great. And you know, the smart thing is my father with debt and all those things always worked really tight uh, and made sure that, that, you know, he never overextended himself. So it wasn't like they were going to lose their house, but they were going to lose all their savings and their earnings and all the wow. people. The biggest thing for them is the people who work for them. Right. right? And thinking like, what are we going to do? And the last thing you want to do is be firing and laying off. And we had to come up with plans. And the hardest thing for me was that I was doing it remotely from New York in an office that was probably the most expensive office we had that only housed two, three people where we had this other office in Miami and the other ones in Italy with even more people. So from a selfish sense, you know, we know where we could have done some cost savings, but at the same time, if we would have lost face here, it would have drowned us out of New York. Right. right. So we had to really, you have to put up a facade mm-hmm. and all that and balancing that out. And unfortunately, a lot of changes had to happen. And I learned very quickly with my sister. Thank God it happened at that part, at that point, because it happened where we were mature enough. We understood money a bit. Mm-hmm. I already had a mortgage. So I appreciated every cent that was coming mm-hmm. in my pocket. Uh, I had a woman I was trying to impress. So you bought a place in New York at that point? Uh, I no, no, I hadn't, but I already had my place in Miami. Oh, right. I see. Okay. So I'm renting it. I'm, you know, gotcha. okay. I'm doing, I'm adulting. Right, right. And it was just enough, enough to understand yeah. money moving. Right. It was one of the things that my parents pushed. I bought this apartment and then I had to rent it out. And then if I didn't have a tenant for a month, I felt you it. Eat it. Yeah. So, um, so balancing all those things and and you know impressing a new wife. Right? What are you going to do? How are you going to show that you can be a homemaker when yeah. the market's crashing? And, and that was a pressure on everybody. Uh, and, and obviously, she's in medicine, so it's not stable, but more. And then she had the wild idea of starting her practice in the middle of it. Right. And, Actually, I opened. I bought my space at the height of the market in March of 2008. <laughs> I know, so, Yeah, March of 2008. Or July of 2008. The market in, crashed. And I opened in March of 2009, the absolute worst time to start a practice <laughs> on Fifth Avenue in New York City. So well, I feel that, man. That's the yeah. phoenix, man. Yeah. And that's 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 the biggest lesson. The, another lesson I think that I use to myself every morning is I think today's new, right? Today's new. You do have a clean slate. Maybe you said something stupid yesterday. Mm-hmm. Maybe you made a mistake yesterday. Maybe something was really great yesterday, but today's new. Mm-hmm. So you always have that opportunity to start fresh. And those times, you know, okay, some industries never recovered and they disappeared. Mm-hmm. But adaptation mm-hmm. and hustle. Mm-hmm. And I think having that happen at that time uh, prepares you to understand the cycles a little bit further, but mm-hmm. also to not be as scared, mm-hmm. but then be able to lift others around you that you need because you need support. Yeah. And, you know, I think about my sister every day. I think about Sapna. I think about like you guys, right? I think about friends and like, who can you call on? Because there's going to be a moment that you need that support. So pushing that, 
that cycle in that time period, man, I saw most of my friends lose jobs on right. Wall Street. And now they're not even in that business. Yeah, that's crazy. Right? And, and we lived on Wall Street, and we still do. Man, the night Lehman Brothers crashed, uh, Wall Street was required, based on how the bankruptcies worked, to remove all their desks from Wall Street, right? From Because they have desks there. Oh, my God. It was like something like a 1,000 desks. They took all those desks and stacked them on wall and broad in the middle of the street because wow. a crane car had to come the next morning to pick it up and put in a dump truck. Oh, but it looked like World War II. Like, you know those scenes out of like yeah. Belgium that's destroyed and they're burning the fire to keep warm? That's what it looked like. And you could see all the people who lost their jobs sitting on the steps. Like, people didn't know where to go, what to do. And when you see that, and you can, you know, work towards trying to make that softer because it will things will happen. Right. It's not if, if it's just how you right. deal with it when and whether you're prepared for it. And you know what? Something's going to fall through the cracks and something's going to suck. But if you hustle now, now's the time to hustle. Right. Like now's the time to really make certain things happen and lay foundations for what could be, you know, a flood later. So technology is going to change us yeah. quite a bit. So it already has. It's yeah. like, I, we could keep talking, but the, you know, the new team that we've got, it's a different generation. And I see what their these strengths are and how they can adapt on technology. And I'm like, man, it's mind blowing. Yeah. I'm like, I don't even understand what you guys just spoke about for an hour and a half. But, totally but here's my rudimentary idea. Right. Just go and make it happen. But little by little you learn and then you realize that new technology comes out later. And are they keeping up? And I think right now is a is a key time where you it's a catch up time for a lot of people and just to make sure you're caught up because it's gonna go exponential. Yeah. Um and and I think that's the other thing that keeps that hustle. Going. So what's so where's Costa Bella at right now? Like, did you guys did you guys sell it at some point? No, no, okay, no, no, it's fully family owned and Still, operated. Okay, but um, was ever thoughts to sell it? Always, man. Yeah, I mean, you know, the price is right. Well, you think about, but you think about what it means or what you want the brand to mean, and what you want the brand to mean is something that you've built and, and has heritage and has legacy. And you can't deny that, you know, if someone is flashing things that, uh, that look great, you want to be able to, you want to be able to entertain it to also understand your value. Right. Right. And I think valuations are such a weird thing now, if you go on the economics conversation, but you could start a business and there's a business in our industry uh, that a buddy of ours, Angel invested in really grew. And he did a tremendous job at creating a valuation off of uh, a, a business that still was losing a significant amount of money. Mm-hmm. And he was it's able like to the story of everything. Three like years. In, in technology is a lot of that. So the question is, what is business, right? So you got to think, okay, we do a product. We love to deliver it. We love to make the customer happy. But if the distribution models aren't there anymore, what you're doing effectively may not be good for your family. It may not be the right thing. So you need to be ready to adjust it to what the new model is entailing. So what can you do to offset that? Especially if you really like to do something. Like you're so multi-talented, right? Multiversed. And a lot of doctors I've learned really do have an amazing ability to have these other passions and skill sets, you know, whether it be music or art or uh, just business acumen, you know? If you can offset and create like a mixed portfolio, you know, and still manage to do those things that you like in there, you know? then you're doing right by your family because you're a happier person. You're doing right by your friends because you can give more, right? And I think you can't think like, this is my life. This is all I'm going to do. And this is what I'm focused on. You, you, we're all, we've all have capacities outside of what we're yeah. told we are. I talk about this a lot. Like, you know, yeah. it's a lot of times you're sort of pegged into being this unidimensional personality. Like, yeah. you know, like uh, I'm Dr. Mundial, the dermatologist, and that's like who I am. But, you know, we're all so multifaceted and, you know, it's, you can actually embrace all these different aspects of, of who you are, which makes you better at all the things that you do. I mean, essentially, right? If, if you treat yourself as a brand, so Cozabella has amazing collections and within those collections, we have sub brands. Soiree is a specific collection. Talco is another mm-hmm. collection, different fabrications. People search for those words. They don't put Cozabella, they'll go Soiree, right. which means that you have a sub brand. What this economy has done is I could take that sub-brand, make it its own entity, and create a valuation for it and turn it. But what we do as individuals, right, is do we have the capacity to separate those things, right? Or do we just stay under our umbrella? And companies that keep these gems under an umbrella Mm -hmm. and don't create value 
are the companies that ultimately get run over, mm-hmm. right? You have to see the opportunity on what you can extend. And I think even as people, we have to do that. Sure. And as a father or as a son or, you know, as a traveler, as an adventurer. Uh, and when I look at Cozabella, the biggest challenge we had is that as a family company, we were protecting it like that, like this, like this piece of carbon that had all this energy in it, but we weren't breaking apart the diamonds, right? And creating the value in the market for it. Otherwise, just a big rock. Right. And now what we've seen is that with Cozabella, we can do that. And the abilities and the skill sets we have. So we right. created a production company and our production company has a value and I can produce for anyone. And now I can go and acquire a retailer like Journal with Sapna and do my own production and carry my own brand right. and diversify. So the, the idea of being vertical in business and being able to control your whole um, supply chain, yeah. the same thing as a person, being right. able to really control all that, I think that's key. So what my parents did, the way I think that that they've raised us, and, and even seeing it in my wife and how her family raised all of them, um, that's the idea is just diversify, do different things, experience it all. You ask my dad, greatest uh, Renaissance painter or artist, he's gonna say Leonardo because it was, you know, master of none, mm-hmm. right? Just be able to do these different things. You can do them really mm-hmm. well. If you wanna be number one, you're gonna have to give everything to it because someone's always gonna be there trying to be number one. But if you can give it enough, you can enjoy it, right? right? I so, love that, man. That's, yeah, that's him. That's really that's, well said, man. That's what he'll tell you. I just want to close a little bit, man, because, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're getting a... How long are we at? Yeah, it's a lot. All right. Let's just, we'll, we'll, just a couple of things I just want to touch on before we close. What is, can you talk to me about the new project? So something on my friend, who's also a dermatologist, who is your wife. Um, you guys just bought Journal, which um, is a retail luxury lingerie. I guess it's, there are multiple stores in New York, <laughs> but it's all New York-based, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. So what's like, what motivated that? What's the plan? You know, what's the hustle there? I th- I think I've learned and experienced. Um, I've experienced so much in the medical space by being beside her from a product and experience standpoint. Right? I don't know anything about anything, but I can say that as a patient or as a consumer, really, I'd say as a consumer because the medical space is going so much into retail. Um, there's so much that can be added on and done and reinvented. And I think doctors who find those opportunities and want to improve things outside of just their services are the doctors that you want to be treated by, right? Because these are the people that are thinking outside the box and aren't taking nonsense. And because they're really trying to make and get certain ideas across, right? So when you're accomplishing your your specialty and you can say, you know what I'm really missing is this, and I'm missing this, and I'm missing this, you're the person who's going to find solutions for me right? That's the doctor I want. So Sapna is very much that doctor, I think. And uh, I believe, and I know. Um, She's always trying to get people to that next step and uh, not just treat the same issue over and over and over again, which could also be easy, right? Uh, In underwear, there are, what relates more to dermatology than your base layer besides psychology and besides what you eat in your diet, right? The base layer is the physical thing that besides in moisturizers. Sorry. There's so much. Sorry. I said that. <laughs> no, I, I, said hear that so I, hear, I hear what you're saying. But that base layer of clothing means so much. And people want to see sustainability and this and that. And sometimes they're just not, their body's not going to react well to it. Or it's not the right product to help hold certain things mm-hmm. up or move things. So she's identified so many issues that I should solve as Cozabella. And I will solve as Cozabella and continue because we've already uh, incorporated it. But at Journal, we have four stores right now, and we're going to open up more, where we've got these amazing women in these stores working much like PAs, MAs, Mm -hmm. doctors, where they've got these fitting rooms that are like exam rooms, Mm -hmm. where they're able to consult, they're able to diagnose, they're able to give treatment right inside the room with, you know, different bra or different fitting, create solutions, build a rapport. And then create the follow-ups. So was that the culture at Journal? Journal is that what inspired Jun- you to acquire them? The, the 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 founder of Journal, she did such an amazing job at creating something out of nothing that was missing in specialty stores uh, in New York in terms of a certain level of product. I'll say there's a couple of specialty store retailers here in New York that are amazing, and but it's few and far in between. Right? There's this one place. I don't know if this is one of the ones you're talking about. 
But they're like they sell these custom maternity bras, basically, like when you're nursing. Yeah, there's on the some, Upper West yes, Side. Yeah, there's one of those too. Yeah, I mean, when you're what you're just. Well, I remember that going through that process with Vanita when we're when we're when she was pregnant. Yeah, it's literally it's like a clinical, it's like a clinical assessment essentially, and like okay, this is the exact right fit for you, and what's going to function best for you and keep you the most comfortable, you know, during that time of your life. I mean, it sounds like this is sort of an analogous. Your body experience. changes. Your body changes. Some good ways, some bad ways. Really, sometimes makes you really angry. Sometimes doesn't. Of course, there's things like postpartum that are playing a right. role. But when you go to your tried and true things, and they don't fit you anymore, and you don't look the same, yeah, yeah. and you have resentment, or you've got just you're just tired, or trying to find your way back into the workplace, and everything has to be readjusted. It's it's really like buying a new house, right? And um, and the adjustment that's made after that is huge, and and that happens multiple times in life. The other time that happens is, you know, with anything surgical, with any medical issue that goes to, you know, where you really need to come mm-hmm. out of an OR. Um, and that's happening preventative or aesthetic uh, or because you really need it for life-saving measure. And how do you deal with that afterwards? And we get to see all of that stuff and why I think these women in these stores, uh, in that one store, Upper West Side Town Shop, Danny, th- third generation in this business, he's somebody actually... Would be really cool to talk to because he's old school New York, been doing this forever. Great, great dude. Um, And what in the generational side? But what what happens with um, with that experience in the fitting room is vulnerability, right? It's doubt, and it's having that right that right hand to get somebody to lift up and appreciate themselves, right? Or to say, "Damn, right, I'm feeling great." All those kind of things. And if you can do that with specific solutions. So Subna has an idea that has now been percolating for about eight years and have been finding the right time to do it. And it will apply every single place we've ever sold a product. And it will apply in your office. You will sell it here. You really could. Um, because it's going to just make women rethink about the way they've bought specific sized product. And, uh, and it's not anything besides designing for the problem. It's not, it's not anything but that, right? It's just talking, understanding, and diving mm-hmm. in. So Jernell will give us that, and we'll give Sapna, and most importantly Sapna, the opportunity to resolve a lot of these problems and these issues. She is very much leading Jernell in terms of you know the the desire and the push, and the reason why she bought Jernell is because Jernell was going to go bankrupt with the changes that have happened in the marketplace and the adjustments uh, that happened maybe six, seven years ago and how expensive it was to launch digital and do all that, the company found itself in debt. Guess what? If they started now, it'd be really hard to do stores. However, it's the right time to come in and redo your digital because digital actually is something that's accessible. So we're going to relaunch it and we've got the vertical integration because of the product mix. And um, the biggest tie-in though is medical experience with this fashion experience. I mean, it just seems, it makes perfect sense, actually, when you think about it. It's amazing. And, that, and you know. how many people can do that yeah. fully vertical? And, and it, would be a, it would be a loss, I think, for our culture if SUP didn't have the ability to execute on this. Yeah, and, and listen, it happened overnight. And that's the other thing about the hustle. Right now, things really can happen overnight. You can catch things. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's just, you know, eyes open. I mean, you just have to have the ear on the track, right? Yeah. Well, listen, man, I think we got a good glimpse into who you are. I feel like, wow, I really, I didn't know so much about you, man. I've, I've known you for like a really long time. Uh, I guess it's 12 years. We're going to have to do this reverse at some point. But uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's awesome, man. I'm really, I'm really glad I got the opportunity to get to know you better. I'm about to learn about yeah. Cosabella and Jernell and just about you, Ben. You know, you're, you're someone who inspires me, man. Like you're a really successful entrepreneur. You're a wonderful husband, an amazing father. You know, all the thanks, things that, that we aspire to be, man. So thanks for making this trip out, man. I really appreciate you, Guido. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Mudgill Podcast. The corresponding video can be found on YouTube, IGTV, and Facebook. Let's get it.